Well, again, welcome. And this morning, we're continuing our series in the Ten Commandments. Today, we're going to be looking at the First Commandment. Now, as I mentioned last week, there are different ways that people look at the Ten Commandments. You probably have certain ways that you've thought about the Ten Commandments before. I think for some people, we just kind of simply look at them as a check. Uh, list of things either to do or not do. Maybe you think about them as these are the things religious people do. Uh, Some people just focus on the prohibitions and say, well, you know, you're a good person if you just avoid these certain things. But I, I think there's a better way to approach the Ten Commandments. And as we look at the Ten Commandments in the context of the storyline of the Bible, a better way to approach it is to see them now uh, for those of us who are followers of Christ as as a source of wisdom. For us, they are now guidelines and guardrails, and that's the subtitle of this series. They're guidelines in that they they really kind of lay out for us the path of what it looks like for us to follow Christ, some of the dimensions of what that entails, guiding us along the way. And they're guardrails in that they warn us about some of the dangers that we can encounter if we get off the path. Along these lines, let me, let me just highlight two interesting kind of terms or phrases used in the Old Testament. First of all, the most common term in the Old Testament that is translated law is the Hebrew word Torah. And, and law, of course, is a very acceptable, appropriate translation for this term. But I think it also communicates something more generally. It communicates the idea of instruction. And so it communicates the idea that these laws in the Old Testament are intended to guide us in living well. They really are guidelines along the path that we should follow. A second interesting term that is used in the Old Testament is this. Now, as as we acknowledge, when we think about these ten pieces of legislation, uh, we refer to them as the Ten Commandments. But interestingly, in the Old Testament, when they are referred to as a group, the Hebrew phrase that is used is, isn't Ten Commandments. They are referred to as the Ten Words. And I think that that's important for us because it once again reminds us that they, they're not simply communicating a checklist of do's and don'ts. They really are intended to portray for us a path of what life looks like. And, and they're to warn us about certain ways in which we can get off this path. And so for us, again, they are guidelines and guardrails. With that in mind, let's now come to the first commandment. We're going to go through the Ten Commandments week by week, and this week we're looking at the first one. It's very straightforward. Exodus 23, you shall have no other gods before me. As I said, it's straightforward. However, I think to really understand this, we have to pay attention to the context. Now, Remember in the context of the biblical storyline what has just happened. God, through the leadership of Moses, has delivered the nation of Israel from right from Egypt, where they had been slaves, where they had been in bondage. Remember, God sends these plagues, and, and as a result of the plagues, the people are allowed to go free. And, and so all of that has just happened. And in light of what God has just done, he now gives Israel these commandments. Not surprisingly, there's actually a prologue in Exodus chapter 20 
the verse right before this that highlights the context, that highlights all that has just happened. So when you go back one verse, here's the, here's the context of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Now notice, notice that this prologue really focuses on the identity of who God is. And, and, and therefore the relationship that he creates with his people. Right? He is, he is the Lord God. Later in the Ten Commandments, it's clear that he is creator. So the, the emphasis in the Ten Commandments is both on God as creator and here in the prologue, God as the one who redeems. That is, God is the one who delivers his people. He is the Lord of creation He is the Lord of redemption. And through his work on behalf of Israel, through his initiative, his grace, he has now established a relationship with them, right? It's not simply that he is Lord and he is God, but I am the Lord, your God. So his work creates a new relationship. I think one of the ways that this is indicated in the commandments, uh, just involves one of the details of what happens. Now, you'll recall the commandments are inscribed on two tablets. And I think, you know, isn't it the case when we think about the two tablets, we typically think of something like this. Well, but, you know, like the, it's like the first five were written on tablet number one, and then commandments six through ten are written on commandment number two. But most likely, and this is based on how ancient treaties were done, most likely the two tablets were actually each complete sets of the Ten Commandments. And there were two copies because one set was made for each party. This is the way things would have been done in the ancient world. And again, the fact that there are two tablets, most likely with a full set of the commandments on each tablet, it just highlights again that, that, that God is now entering into relationship with Israel. Who he is has established a new relationship. And notice a central theme of this relationship is freedom, right? He he is the Lord your God who has brought you out of Egypt, and then the idea of of freedom is, is echoed again. He's the one who's brought you out of slavery. Now, let's be honest. I realize freedom may not be the first theme that comes to your mind when we think about the Ten Commandments. In fact, you might say these, these commandments don't at all seem like freedom to me. When I, when I think about the Ten Commandments, I think about rules and you know having to keep rules. I don't think about freedom. However, understand this. The argument of the Bible is that freedom, it's not really the ability to do whatever you want because some of the choices that you and I can make can be destructive. They can be enslaving both for ourselves and others. I mean, just think about things like substance abuse or pornography. No, no, true freedom isn't the ability to do whatever you want regardless of what that is. True freedom is the power to become what I was made for. True freedom is the power to become what I was designed for. And I've been created in the image of God. I've been designed to be in relationship with him and to reflect his image in in the world around me. So God has brought Israel out of slavery. 
into a new into a new relationship. And so in a real sense now, the Ten Commandments are going to say, here's what it looks like to live in this new freedom that God is giving you as his people. The freedom that reflects how you've been created, how you've been designed. Now, I think for us, uh, if we fast forward to the life of Christ, we kind of see the same thing. Remember in Luke's Gospel, the opening words of Jesus' public ministry in Luke chapter 4 include words where he reminds the people and presents himself to the people as the one sent to proclaim the freedom for the prisoners, to set the oppressed free. Even as God delivered Israel uh, from Egypt in the Old Testament, Jesus is now identifying himself as the one who comes to bring freedom in an ultimate and final way. So whether you realize it or not, just think about this, but whether you realize it or not, at the heart of Christianity is an invitation to true freedom. An invitation that flows out of God's work as creator and redeemer. So this first commandment, really, it's a powerful invitation a powerful command it's an invitation to take God seriously and ultimately in taking God seriously to live in the freedom that our relationship with him creates now that's great right that's great but already in the first commandment we're made aware we're made aware of a problem and that one problem is idolatry. Remember, you're to have no other gods before me. I think this this statement anticipates the fact that as you read the history of Israel, they're going to be distracted and enticed to worship other gods in all sorts of ways. And given what will be their experience, I think the Bible makes several important uh, observations about idolatry. And, and let me just kind of highlight two of them that I think are really important. One of them is this, that we are vulnerable to idols. Now, here, here's kind of where we have to be careful. Because, you know, when, even when I use the word idol, I think, you know, isn't it the case, the first thing that comes to our minds is, well, we think about, we think about little statuettes. Or we think about, you know, little carvings and ancient temples. For instance, this is a picture from the ancient city of Dan, which, was, which is in northern Israel. This is part of the archaeological remains of that site. And what you're looking at is part of the ancient Israelite temple, or excuse me, gate complex. This would have been part of a, a fairly elaborate gate complex to the entrance of that city. And at one side of this large gate complex, there was this uh, platform this podium that has these stones that were standing and and scholars debate exactly what they refer to but there they were some kind of standing stone that were they were used in in different kinds of worship so they were in a sense some form of ancient idol right in the middle of the gate complex of this Israelite city this uh, gate complex would have been the center of civic activity. So lots of people coming by here every day, moving in and out of the city. And, and right there in the midst of all that activity were these standing stones, which were idols. Now, here's the deal. I look at that and I go, well, 
Okay, I get it. That's what happened in the ancient world, and maybe that's what happens in other parts of the world today. Other parts of the world today, but that's not part of my life experience. So what this commandment is saying really has nothing to do with me about you know no other gods before me. But but here's the deal: idolatry doesn't have to look like a little statue or a standing stone. Rather, idolatry happens whenever something or someone claims the loyalty that that belongs to God alone. Idolatry happens whenever my heart turns to something or something else or someone else besides God for ultimate security, meaning, and purpose in life. And often it can can involve taking something good and and then making it ultimate, making it have a, a role in my life that it was intended to have. For instance, you know it can be good to develop skills and succeed in your work, whatever that looks like. But for some, achievement can, can become something that is ultimate in our lives. And if, if I say, you know, my life's really going to only have meaning if I achieve certain things, then I'm starting to drift into idolatry. Likewise, you know, it's good to have friends. It's good to be viewed positively by others. But if, if I get to the point of saying, you know, for my life to have meaning, for my life to be worthwhile, I've, I've, I've got to be loved and respected by these people. If, if I get to that point, then approval is, is really becoming an idol in my life. Now, in Israel's case, what, what sometimes happened and what sometimes got them in trouble was this approach. It was basically the approach that says, yes, we believe in God, but we also believe in these other gods, right? We believe in God, but we're also going to pray to these other deities for rain or for fertility or for good crops. And even think about that that picture I showed you, this picture from Dan, right? Where, yes, we believe in God, but by the way, we're going we're to put these standing stones up in the heart of our community, right in the center of all of our civic activity. It was a it was what you might call a both-end approach. Yes, we believe in God, but we also, we also want to give ultimate weight to these other things. Years later, Jesus would warn against this approach when he said, you know, you can't serve both God and mammon, right? You can't serve God and money. You can't serve both God and other things. And so I think we, we are vulnerable to this both and approach as well and we'll kind of talk more about that in a moment so so one of the one of the things the bible tells us about idols is this we we are vulnerable to idolatry and we just got to acknowledge that but i think something else the bible ultimately argues is this idols are counterfeit gods now think about the wording of this commandment again right you shall have no other gods before me. That, that phrase, no other gods before me, is easy to misunderstand. It, I mean, you may interpret it as something like this. Well, it's like God is saying, okay, you, there may be other gods, but I've got to be number one. But I don't think that's what the phrase means. Uh, I think you, it's more helpful, perhaps, to think of it along these lines. You, you can have no gods instead of me. Or, or, or here's, here's the way I like to really translate that, that language. You can have no other gods in my presence. That's, you know, before me as in, as in in front of me. I think the idea is when we understand who God really is 
and what he has done. When we stand in his presence, other gods are exposed as counterfeits. And this is, this is really what you see, I think, throughout the Bible. I mean, the Bible takes idolatry very seriously. But it also argues that other gods are actually counterfeit. So, for instance, this is Psalm 115. We read these words. But their idols are silver and gold, gold made by human hands. Now, notice this. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears, but cannot hear. Noses, but cannot smell. They have hands, but cannot feel. Feet, but cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. Now, do you you get the big idea here? The big idea is really, ultimately, these, these other gods, these idols are counterfeits. The the only power they actually have is the power we give them. They're powerless. Furthermore, when we give them power, over time we become like them, right? Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. So in in the themes of Scripture, when the Bible talks about idolatry, the Bible shows us we are... We are vulnerable to idols, but ultimately idols are just counterfeit gods. So let's get back to the first commandment then. Central to this commandment is is the command to uh, take God seriously and to live in the freedom that he creates. And along with that comes a warning against idolatry. So now let's just let's just take a few minutes to talk about living this out. What is it? What does it take to live this out? We've said that the commandments are guidelines and guardrails. So what does this look like for us to take the first commandment as a guideline and a guardrail? Well, let me mention two things just in terms of living this out. First of all, if if this if we're going to embrace this commandment as a guardrail in our lives, I think um, I think that requires discernment. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, To embrace this command as a guardrail involves discerning and identifying the ways that that you and I can can be vulnerable to idols, the ways that we can uh, just be distracted. And I think particularly for those of us who are followers of Christ, are there ways I can get stuck in that kind of both-and approach, right? I believe in God. I mean, I committed my life to Christ, but ah, there's this other thing or this other person that can distract me in a way that I give that, that thing too much weight and too much significance. Can I get stuck in a both-and approach? You know, there are ways in which I believe in God, yet I also put an unhealthy emphasis on other dimensions of my life. Right? So, for instance, maybe, you know what? I believe in God. I've committed my life to Christ. But I also have an unhealthy desire to maintain control. And, And that desire, particularly when I'm under pressure, can become an idol. Right? I'll do everything to control my environment. Everything to control the people I work with. Everything I can to control members of my family. And, 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 and to an outsider, you can just see that in operation. Whether I realize it or not, maybe I'm, I've kind of drifted into a both-and approach. I believe in God. I've committed my life to Christ. But I, 
I really have to have control for my life to have meaning and purpose. It's a both-end approach. I'm drifting into idolatry. So let me ask you, are, are, are there ways you're vulnerable to this? Are, are there ways to, that you're vulnerable to, you know what, I believe in God, I believe in Christ, but I'm really elevating this other thing or this other reality to an unhealthy level of importance in my life? That takes discernment, and that discernment is, is a guardrail that we need in our lives. And along those lines, let me just mention a couple of helpful questions that, that I think we can ask in identifying idols. And by the way, if you'd like to read more, let me just recommend this book by Timothy Keller, Counterfeit Gods. And um, he's the one who's kind of suggested these types of questions. So just here, here are a couple of questions that I think we can use to help us kind of gain discernment and whether or not, you know, am I drifting into that both end approach? Is, is idolatry kind of at work in my life in ways I don't fully understand? So the first question, <laughs> what do I daydream about? Right? I mean, what do I, what I, what do I daydream about? When, when I've got nothing else going on, when I'm not distracted, I mean, where does my mind naturally wander to when nothing is commanding my attention? Because um, wherever your mind goes, that can really, that can be a clue to what's really uh, gaining your focus right now. That can be a clue to what's really important to you right now, and it can be a clue to what's of ultimate significance to you. And and sometimes these are things that, <laughs> that we're making idols of. So pay attention to what, what, am I, what am I daydreaming about? Not surprisingly, I think another question uh, is, what, what do I spend my money on? Because how we use our money can become a great clue to what's important to me. And then uh, let me just mention one other question. And that is this. <laughs> what, what are your strongest emotions? Pay, pay attention to your strongest emotions because sometimes they give us clues of discernment and kind of understanding what's really going on inside. And they, they can, can uh, our strongest emotions sometimes really are clues to what have become idols in our lives. So what, what are your strongest emotions and what triggers those emotions? For instance, what makes me really angry? I mean, you know, what, what really makes me angry? And when that happens, what is it that causes it? I mean, uh, I don't know, maybe, I, I don't know if you've done this or not, but when, you know, when, when I get really angry, have I ever stopped to say, okay, so what's causing this? Where's this coming from? What's underneath it? I mean, another way to think about that is, what is the threat that is producing this anger? What in my life is under threat in such a way that it's generating this emotional response? For instance, maybe, you know, maybe I've gotten upset because of how certain people have treated me. As you, you know, as you've gone back to school or you've gone back into the office, depending on your work and how things have gone this year. Maybe there's there've been some difficult relationships. And now, you know what, I'm really angry because of how people have treated me and the fact that they haven't respected me appropriately. And let's be honest, it's understandable to be upset but if, if my anger has become really uncontrollable, if it's over the top, uh, 
If I can't stop thinking about this, if this is what my mind, you know, just keeps going back to over and over again, then maybe, for instance, there's a sense in which approval has become an idol in my life, that I've taken that, that need to be respected or loved by certain people, and I've elevated it to an unhealthy place. And, and consequently, you know, maybe as a Christian, then I've, I've kind of drifted into this both-and approach. Yes, I believe in God, and, you know, I'm doing, I'm, I'm active in church, I'm engaging God, but there's also this sense in which this other stuff has now gained a, a heightened level of importance. So I think a guardrail um, that we need in protecting us that comes out of the first commandment is just the guardrail of discernment, understanding kind of how I can drift into idolatry, how I can drift into that both-and approach. But not only, I think, does this, um, this commandment give us a guardrail, ultimately it also gives us a path, it gives us a guideline, it gives us an invitation, and that, that guideline, that invitation, is an invitation to work. This is a command that challenges us to take God seriously. And in taking God seriously, it's an invitation to worship. Argu- arguably, the most famous uh, restatement of the first commandment in guideline form is Deuteronomy 6.4. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, right? Love the Lord with everything you've got. And I think that's, that's an invitation to worship. And uh, just to kind of give you an example of of what I'm talking about here, let let me highlight a scene from David's life, King David. And it's it's the scene that leads to Psalm 86. Psalm 86 is a psalm of David. Um, We don't know the specifics, but it is clearly written in a time when he was facing some type of challenge, some type of opposition, some complication. And of course, you know his life, there were a lot of those challenges, a lot of the complexities, the ups and downs that were part of his life. And this psalm is written in the midst of one of those hard seasons, one of those difficulties. Life has gotten difficult, and um, that's the backdrop to this psalm. Now let's be honest, sometimes when we find ourselves there, even as Christians, I think what happens is we just we just disengage spiritually. I mean, maybe that's happened to you over the last year and a half, right? I mean, due to all the complexity, the difficulty, you're just trying to, you know, I'm just trying to make things happen, and somehow in the midst of that, I've just kind of disengaged spiritually. And and what happens is in disengaging spiritually, then maybe maybe we focus on other things. I disengage spiritually, and then, you know, there's a greater emphasis that I place on control or how to get out of this. Or maybe I disengage spiritually, and I'll, all I'm trying to do is medicate the pain or the frustration. And along the way, we drift into kind of that both-end approach, right? I believe in God, but I'm also really focused on this other stuff. But David doesn't do that in this psalm. In fact, early in the psalm, he, he, he makes this pronouncement, you know, as he prays to God, he says, you are my God. And in doing so, right, he's, he's echoing the very words of Exodus 22, right? It's, he, he acknowledges, even in the midst of this difficulty, I'm, I'm in relationship. I'm in the relationship that you have created by your grace. And then he prays. And as he prays, he engages God in different ways. He praises him. He, 
He brings his request to him. He remembers what God has done. He acknowledges the uniqueness of who God is. And then as, as you read further, we get here. He says, teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Now notice this. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever. <laughs> now here's what I love here's what I love about this psalm. It's 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 give me an undivided heart. It's like David is saying, Okay, God, right now, in the midst of this situation, it's so easy for me to slide into a both and approach. God, I believe in you, but I've I've got to take control. Or I believe in you and, and I've got to get revenge on my own. Or I believe in you, but because I can't control this, I'm going to get stuck in fear or anxiety. But David doesn't do that. Right? He chooses to worship. He says, okay, God, in the midst of this, I, I'm, I'm going to engage you. I'm going to worship you. I'm going to remember what you've done. I'm going to bring my request to you. I'm going to praise you along the way. And, and he may not fully understand it, but the reality is this worship is creating a path for him to move forward. This worship is creating a path, and it's also putting up that guardrail against a divided heart. It's creating a path, and he's also aware that I don't want to be distracted by putting ultimate weight in other things right now. So for David, he's worshiping. And as he's worshiping, he's, he's walking on the path, and he's not getting into the dangers that idolatry idolatry can produce so what we see in David's life is is really the the first commandment becoming a guideline in a guardrail now I mentioned this last week but uh, throughout this series if you're on campus we've created a ring set of the Ten Commandments and uh, if you're here you can pick up a physical copy of these each of these cards has one of the commandments and on the back it is blank we're also linking a PDF copy of these cards to each of the Sunday bulletins uh, uh, during the series so you can download that all you have to do is go to hfcinfo.com and you can find a link to these cards but I encourage you uh, uh, throughout this series week by week to uh, take the back of the card and just rewrite rewrite the the commandment in your own words you can do this individually as a couple or if you're part of a family you can do that together perhaps for you um, rewriting this includes just describing (laughs) kind of the way uh, uh, you need discernment and not falling into certain both-and approaches and then challenging yourself to engage in worship, to restate this command in terms of what it means for it to be a guardrail and a guideline. So I encourage you to do that. Likewise, let me just challenge you. If, if you've gotten stuck in a both-and approach, I mean, even if now you realize, you know, I'm, yeah, I believe in God, I've committed my life to Christ, but there's this other thing, this other reality, this other theme that is, I've just given too much weight to in my life. 
I pray that you'd have the discernment to understand that that's going on. And I pray that you would recognize the need to worship. I pray that you would understand what God has done for you through the work of Jesus Christ. And that is of ultimate significance so that you recognize he is your God. And so that even in this moment, you could praise him, you could acknowledge him, you could bring your request to him. And as you do that, you're going to stay on this path. And as you do that, the words of the first commandment can truly become for you a guideline and a guardrail. Let's pray together. Gracious God, as as we unpack this commandment, it really does show us um, this invitation to take you seriously and to engage you in worship. And Father, it also warns us of how we can get distracted. And I, I particularly pray for some of us because I think as we've been talking, as we've been reflecting over the last few minutes, some of us can really see that both-end approach in our own lives. We believe in you, but, the, but you know, the, the need for comfort or approval or security has taken an ultimate role in my life and has, has become a distraction from you. So, Father, if, if we have gotten caught in that both-end approach, I, I pray you'd give us the discernment to see that that's what's happening. And give us the discernment to realize that while we're vulnerable to idols, they're ultimately counterfeit gods. And I pray that in that discernment, we would also just be drawn to the importance of worship. Maybe there's something in my life right now that I've really been trying to control on my own, and and I just haven't brought it to you. And maybe in the midst of that, I've, I've lost sight of who you are. I've lost sight of the wonder of the good news of Jesus Christ and what that means. I've lost sight of the fact that as a Christian who's committed my life to you, that my, my identity is now rooted in you and these other things that feel like ultimate threats are not ultimate threats. So, Father, I, I pray that we would have the discernment to understand where we may be tempted to get off the path, but I pray also, that we would, we would just engage you in worship. Father, along with David, we pray that you would give us an undivided heart. And Father, with that undivided heart, help us take next steps along the path. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, I encourage you to kind of rewrite this uh, commandment in your own words, thinking about what it means to be a guideline and a guardrail. And I also pray that you would hear the words of the commandment as we start a new week as an invitation to live in the freedom that only God can give you. Amen.